Hey everyone, this is Sam from Novel Discourse with a quick note about today's episode. This is part one of a two-part series where we're going to be drafting the best movies of the 90s. We were totally intending for this episode to be part one, and we were going to have a clean sign-off towards the end after about the seventh or eighth pick out of the 15, but we actually had some audio issues, so it's, it's not quite a clean break, but I will come back on and sign us off. As I said, next week we'll come back with part two, where we will finish our our two-part series on drafting the best screenplays of the 90s. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Welcome to the Novel Discourse Podcast, where we discuss great stories and how they're told. We have a very fun episode today. We're going to be discussing the best movies of the 90s, in particular the best screenplays of the 90s. And helping me do so today, we have... Andy, coming from Austin. Andy, how you doing? Pretty good, Sam. Uh, very excited about this. I consider myself an expert in uh, cinema from the 1890s, so I have prepared uh, vehemently for this. Uh, all three films I have watched back-to-back. So Good to hear. Yes. Um, and then we've got Webb calling in for the first time. Webb, how are you doing? I'm doing well. Definitely excited to talk about probably uh, my favorite time period in cinema history, which is just that era we grew up in. And- the 90s. Yeah. You can't beat it. And as we discuss this, we're not just going to pick the, the our, our favorite movies. We're going to be doing a snake draft. So if, you, if you've ever been in fantasy football, you're probably very familiar with this, but we're each going to be selecting our, our top five movies. We're each going to have a chance to uh, make a team, if you will. And then by the end, you'll you'll have a chance to figure out you know which, which one of us drafted the best team. So as always, if you're listening for the first time, we greatly appreciate you guys listening. If you're new, please like and subscribe. We greatly appreciate you guys listening in. And uh, tell two friends. We always we always appreciate all the word of mouth. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, you'll have a chance to see our, our big board. We'll be going over who selected what, so hopefully you can follow along a little bit better. Webb, you talked about it a little bit. The 90s is just chock full of great movies. When I was making my my Mel Kuyper big board for the 90s, there's just a ton of them. And it's it's hard to kind of whittle it down to five picks, isn't it? It's just everything, full-blown pop culture. We killed it in the Gulf War. We're invincible. And the movies kind of reflect that, I, I feel like. And so for me, I know like a lot of times I'm just going to bed at night, always turn on like really bad 90s movies, you know, like bad action movies. That's where my head tends to go. But when I sat down and started to really look at movies, some of the screenplays from the 90s and some of the better movies we talk about, I got really excited about it because uh, there was some great films that came out during that 10-year stretch, and a lot of them are kind of really reflective, I think, of where the culture was at the time, and it's always fun to look back and put that under the microscope. It was like peak Americana, wasn't it? I mean, you brought that up. Some of these films, as I was going down the list of not only the ones that I put on my big board, but the ones that we'll probably talk about in honorable mentions is like... You don't even have to know that a movie came out in the 90s. You could just be skimming past your cable and you're like, this looks like a 90s film. It feels like a 90s film. Not only from the way they're directing it and the kind of cinematography is going, but just the, like you said, the themes and the way that the characters are presented and stuff. It's not quite the 80s, but it's a, it's a little more advanced than that. Not The hair's not quite as big. The dialogue's a little bit more advanced, but it's still kind of like... And again, very much is like extremely American centric and just kind of feels big, if you will. Yeah. And it, I mean, it was, this is right before what, you know, where we are now with the worldwide box office before we had such an emphasis on that. So you really do get a lot of like, what would be good? We'll call them Oscar movies. You know, you think of between the, 
70s and the 90s of uh, stories that really hit home. Growing up here in the United States, you know, that was the entire market coming out of Hollywood for the most part. Movies that are really original that don't get made a lot anymore when we just kind of got more and more like CGI heavy Marvel movies, movies with The Rock and stuff. I miss some of the stuff that I'm sure we'll talk about today, like Goodwill Hunting. Oh, a, a lot more uh, original, a lot more original screenplays were made at the time. Uh, it felt like way fewer sequels, reboots. I mean, the stuff that we're rebooting and sequeling now, a lot of it had its its beginning of its era in in the 1990s. I think it's interesting you bring up kind of the like peak Americana. Um, I was actually going to draw a similar comparison. You know, early in the 90s was when uh, Francis Fukuyama published The End of History, which was kind of this landmark socio-political doctrine about how now that communism has, like, been vanquished, uh, liberal democracy is the final form of government. Like, people truly believe that, like, we're done. Like, no more. There will never be another big change. Society has reached its Frieza's final form. No need to get the Dragon Balls. We're good. Um, And I think our, our culture and our media reflected that, that it was like, let's explore what it's like to be at the top. And I think so much of, if you look at movies set in all time periods, so many of those movies are set at the peak of various societies, civilizations. So like most movies about Rome are at the peak of the Roman Empire. Most movies about Great Britain are at the height of their imperial brilliance, things like that. And so I think movies in the 90s that were made about the, the contemporary period reflect what Americans considered. I mean, um, you know, I don't know if anyone's going to choose the matrix, but you know, there's a line in the matrix where they're like, yeah, we had to choose like what we were, the machines were going to make the matrix. And we decided to, to choose the end of the 20th century, the peak of human civilization, which is yeah. a very interesting in retrospect to like, think of like 1998 as this is as good as it's ever going to be. Like it's a very interesting mindset, man. And, and you, something interesting you kind of bring up and talking about the matrix. That's one of those movies. I hope we get the chance to talk about it. it comes out at the very end of the decade. And I went back just the other week and watched uh, Misery with Kathy Bates. Super good. Uh, and James Can, like, from, like, 1990. And it's amazing just on the technical oh, front, yeah. like, the cinematography and everything, how much it's changed. If we go back and watch a film from 2008, you know, that is 12, 13 years old, whatever, right now, you can't really tell a difference, you know, in production versus, like, kind of what you're streaming on Netflix in 2022. When you look at the 90s and, and pick up a movie from, like, 1991... It feels totally different than the stuff that was coming out by the end of the I decade. agree. I also feel um, like some of these movies hold up a little better because of their reliance on practical effects rather than CGI. Like, especially yeah. in the early 2000s when CGI came into prominence, like, of course, to them and to us, it looked great. But now we have such better CGI that they actually date themselves, like, pretty severely. Like, I went back and was watching the old Star Wars prequels, yeah. and they look like shit. Like, the CGI is really yep. bad. The backgrounds don't blend well with, like, what's in the foreground. So you can instantly tell when these movies were made, whereas, like, you watch Saving Private Ryan, and, you know, that could have been made any time. Like, I mean, it's a modern film, obviously. Or but, even Jurassic yeah, Park, Jurassic dude. Park looks great. How, how well the Jurassic Park special effects hold up over time, and I compare that to... I remember when I was in sixth grade, like, right after this decade. I think it was year 2000, 2001. Spider-Man with yeah. Tobey Maguire. I thought that was the coolest. The trailer alone, I was like, this is the, you know, special effects will never get yeah. any better than this. And I look back now, and it looks so cartoonish and dated. Even compared to, you know, Jurassic Park from 1993, that truly holds up 
better in terms of its special and it, effects. And it, 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 looks it, more it real. feels like it forced yeah. filmmakers. I mean, the big the big uh, example of this is when, and this is not from the '90s, but when Steven Spielberg made Jaws, um, they couldn't show the shark that much because it was an animatronic mm-hmm. shark. It looked kind of shitty. And so they had to use kind of like the, the mystery of the shark, the presence of the shark, and the, the fear of the unknown and the ocean. Whereas now, if you made Jaws, dude, that, that shark's going through the boat. It's jumping in slow motion out of the water. And it wouldn't be the same film. Yeah, you get to see the shark in the yeah, trailer. Yeah, exactly, exactly. If it came out now, you get to see the shark so in the trailer. I, I, um, I think there's and- a, a certain, a definite charm to these movies because of like the constraints they were under. And I think that forced innovation and creativity that maybe you don't see now because they are able to just like shoot for three weeks in front of a green screen and then just hand it off to the guys in post and have them you know avatar i don't even know what those actors did <laughs> like av- like the entire yeah, film is just like, like entirely rendered not to sound totally uh, apathetic or, or hopeless you know um but to to kind of put on my my boomer hat i think that it is crazy and you mentioned this earlier how Everything we have today, it seems like it's a sequel or some sort of reboot. I saw a really interesting chart a couple years back that showed uh, like the top grossing movies by decade. And they used three different colors, like red, yellow, and blue. Blue was like based off a book. You know, red was an original script, and yellow was some sort of sequel. Um, and man, from the 70s through the 80s, it was like almost entirely original scripts or, or stuff based off books in the 90s. A ton of that too, and then like right as you hit the millennium, the entire chart just went full on yellow. It was like everything is Men in Black too, Spider Man. I I don't want to take credit away because there are great original, even big budget action like John Wick was amazing. Yeah. Like the Bourne movies came out; those are based on books. But like there's there's stuff that has come out that is really good. But yeah, the 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 percentage of existing IP um, and the timeline for a reboot is so shortened now. Like. When I first saw Ocean's Eleven when I was a kid, I didn't even know there was an old Ocean's Eleven that like Frank Sinatra was in because it had been so long. Now they're talking about rebooting American Psycho, and that came out when I was in like elementary school, and now it's going to come out like in my early thirties. That's that's a very short timeline to be like, yeah, let's just go ahead and reel this back out. Like, I feel like Nick Young being on the the Warriors when he was like flexing that he got a ring. Here, you guys are just like. Comp- Perfectly dissecting it, and here I am just, like, listening, like, yep, I'm going to get an A on this group project. Um, but speaking of sports references, um, something to keep in mind about this draft that we have tonight is that we have a little bit of a stipulation. And much like if you're watching the NBA draft and you'll see teams maybe take a center or a power forward after they've taken a point guard, we want to mix things up a little bit, right? It would be very easy to sit there and just go draft a drama 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 you know best screenplay dramas across the board in order to mix things up we're going to add a stipulation which is you have to draft at least three different genres you have to pick a you know maybe it's a romantic comedy maybe it's an action flick maybe it's a mystery thriller but whatever it is mix it up a little bit you'll be asked to have at least three different genres by the end of the draft and and if, it, if there's ever a question as to whether or not a genre is one thing or another, we can always discuss that as part of the debate, right? So after everybody makes a pick, we are going to get into the discussion as to 
whether or not it was considered a reach or whether this is like a, you know, consensus all American that's going to kill it. Um, and Sam, is this, the, uh, just uh, so we're clear on the, uh, the framework here, is this mm-hmm. the best movies, our favorite movies? I think a lot of times when like lists of things come out, people want to know what the methodology is. Yep. So I just want to make sure the listeners sure. know kind of what we're, where our heads are at with this. Yeah. My, my thought process, you know, this, this title is going to be the best screenplay of the nineties, but there are some screenplays that are phenomenal that everything else is poor. Right. Sure. And, and so I think the best way Absolutely. of marking this is best movies with screenplay greatly in mind, because there are some movies that we consider to be pretty, pretty stellar that maybe the, the screenplay isn't the reason for that. You brought up last week, we talked about the gladiator. I don't know if gladiator is nineties film. Hopefully I'm not taking anybody's it's pick. It's 2001. Away. Got it. Okay, perfect. Like, Gladiator excels for a lot of reasons, but I wouldn't consider screenplay one of them, right? So, like... Well, in some of these movies, like, I have movies on my list that are, like, in my big board, I have movies that are quintessentially 90s. Like, you watch them, you instantly know they're 90s, but they're not. They wouldn't be on the... Like, I have Hackers, which, if someone was, like, explain, show me the 90s in a film, Hackers would definitely be in my top five, because it's just, like, so perfect about that, but... Again, not a great screenplay, horribly acted. Not a very good movie, but very 90s. Right. So I just want to make sure people know the balance. I think the, the main thing is, yeah, let's focus on the movies with the really strongest stories. You know, because uh, I, I did the same thing when I started looking at what movies I might actually want to pick in this draft. I, I started looking at some of the movies I love the most and said, man, this movie is really, dr- like, it's extremely well-directed. The acting's in it's great. Uh but from a story perspective, it's it's just good. Yeah, I mean, it's The Rock good. is like one of my favorite movies of all time, but I can't say it has like the greatest right. script. No one's gonna give you a hand you a Pulitzer sure. because you wrote the <laughs> because you wrote The Rock. Right, right. So with that being said, we'll go ahead and get started um, now that everybody understands the rules. So again, just keep in mind that you have to pick three different uh, genres throughout your five picks. So I have drawn straws before this recording and. Leading us off is going to be Andy. It's going to go Andy, myself, and then oh, Webb. Lord. Webb has the kind of privilege of having the third pick. And then again, because it's a snake draft, he'll get the fourth nice. pick overall as well. So Andy, Whoa. no fright. In, in a few picks, you'll be able to pick back to back as well. But go ahead, Andy. You have you have the kind of uh, the privilege and the punishment of picking the number one story of the 90s. So, so I thought about this a lot, actually, because there are, I mean... It goes without saying that in a decade of film, you're going to have some incredible power players. And there's some that are so uh, emotionally important to me that it was very difficult. I'm really torn between two. I'm going to say Goodfellas as the number one pick. Okay. I think think Goodfellas is the most perfect mafia movie that has ever been created. I think it's better than The Godfather or Part 2, which are both in my, you know, I love those movies. Goodfellas is like the most perfect Scorsese film. Like if you could only show someone one Scorsese movie and be like, this is Scorsese, like Goodfellas is that movie. It has insane performances by a bunch of actors. And I love the, the screenplay is incredible. Just like the kind of the, what has become like a big trope, which is kind of like the, You've you've seen it in things like um, Scarface, just like the rise and fall of of a gangster and kind of watching how that world is built up and then crumbles. And in this, we get to see Henry Hill. It it encapsulates so much of his life, which on the surface, it almost seems like that'd be too much and you wouldn't be able to do that well in a tight, concise screenplay in a way that keeps the audience engaged. But every period of his life in this film is done – 
really tightly, really great moments they use to capture the spirit of the era he's living in. Uh, you know what time period you're operating in based on how people are dressed and their conversation and the attitudes towards different things. And it just has some of the most iconic dialogue like of any uh, of, of any mafia oh, yeah. movie. So Goodfellas is my Did, number one pick. The, the thing about this movie that was sticking out to me, because I had it number two on my big board, this is the Doke Walker Award winner from Penn State who's rushed for like 2,000 <laughs> yeah, yards. Yeah, definitely. Like, just like he solid-ass <laughs> pick that nobody's going to question, right? Yep. Goodfellas has, first of all, it's like, even if you don't know what Goodfellas is, you know what Joe Pesci's character from Goodfellas Absolutely. was, right? And this is where that character was created. Is that not one of the yeah. greatest? Hey, he won won an Oscar for Best Supporting Actor um, for that. And I was trying to see, I think this movie actually got beat out in Best Picture or for Best Screenplay when it came out by uh, Dances it with did. Wolves. It did, and it was a big... Which it, I actually thought... It was a big snub, like that... which. Dances yeah, with Wolves is exactly. great, but it's not, not as good as Goodfellas. In fact, I went when I because I had Dances with Wolves. I don't want to get it on a Dances of Wolves tangent. I actually would kind of like to, but <laughs> I'm not going to pick it for a number of reasons. Once I started looking at it more closely, I was like, man, there is no way this is better than Goodfellas. Right. Uh, it's it's on many levels way more campy. Goodfellas, I will say this, um, it is Martin Scorsese's is at his yeah. finest masterpiece. It is like. The script is good. I think it's worthy of definitely being a top 10 or a top 5 from the 90s. But as far as like directorial effort goes, it's no doubt that it is a top 5. I love the pace of it. It locks you in from kind of this, uh, you know, the first line of the movie. All I ever wanted to do was Yeah, for be as long as I can remember, I um, wanted to be a gangster. Right. And it, what it does that I think is really interesting, because before Goodfellas, you know, and to this day, kind of the... Uh, status symbol or the status quo for mafia movies is yep, the godfather absolutely. and the godfather presents this really sexy underworld kind of gentlemen you know, people who gen- kind of live gentlemen like criminals who like have a code yes. but this what this does is it, it feels a lot more real is it locks you in with henry hill's sense of you know uh boyhood wonder just watching these guys from across the street and then it locks you into the sexy you see the fast-paced lifestyle but unlike the godfather it, it, it both kind of highlights the machismo of these guys and also, like, cuts them down oh, at the yeah. same time for being, you know, uh, for, for all their shortcomings and how everything kind of unravels. So you get a great juxtaposition that I don't think Coppola really gives you with The Agreed. Godfather. I think that we've almost... I think Goodfellas and The Sopranos almost ruined the mafia genre for anyone who wanted to try it afterward because... They brought such a level of gritty realism and a different perspective to the genre. And after that, you could never go back and just make the like, I'm going to make you an awful you couldn't refuse thing ever again. Because it seemed like fake after you saw the good, like Goodfellas and the Sopranos. So yeah, agreed totally. I still love that scene where they have the guy in the trunk and they stop over it. So good. Yeah, he's like the mom. Yeah, the mom. Man, she's like this nice little Italian lady making him food. And I love that where he's looking at the painting and he goes... I like this painting. You know, one dog faces one way, one dog faces the other. <laughs> hey, that kind of looks like someone we know. And they all just start laughing. Dude, I, my, right from the start, oh, it gets me because I love this scene where he get Henry gets in trouble for skipping school, and then it immediately cuts to like him in the backseat of the car with all the mob guys, and the mailman comes out of the post office, and you just see Henry Hill go, that's him, and they just 
kidnap the postman <laughs> and they're shoving his head in a pizza oven being like, you ever bring this, any mail to this fucking kid's house again? I'm going to fucking cook you alive. You understand me? Like instantly you're like, holy shit, dude. Yes. I mean, I will say this about Goodfellas. How many times have you seen that movie? How many times have you sat down intentionally to watch it? And how many times have you just seen it oh, on TV and the next thing you're you know, done. you're like yeah. in for like Absolutely. two hours. Like, well, I know that the shoebox scene is coming up in 15 minutes. Yeah. There's no way I'm going to Go home and get, get your fucking now. shine box. We haven't talked yeah. about it, but I still think my favorite scene is, it's not even intentional, but it's a scene towards the beginning where they're in the bar. And the kind of penultimate part of the scene is when Joe Pesci gets mad at the guy for laughing too hard at his story yeah. or whatever. That's kind of like what, what I'm a clown to you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But like what I love it for is the meme ability of Ray Liotta's laughing. In oh, that yeah. Scene. Well, and like I know it's not screenplay, but I have to bring up, dude, how about the tracking shot where they get out of the car? He's taking his wife on their first date. Yep. And if camera just follows them like side entrance down that long hallway henry's saying hi to everyone he's tipping everybody he's the man yep they snap their fingers they bring out like they don't have a table it's totally full so they bring out a separate table and you're kind of like you're almost another person walking with him and you're just like damn dude Mm -hmm. this guy is the man and the second they sit down like the bottle of champagne just appears and he looks over and there's like a huge table full of just 300 pound fat italian guys that are like Hey, salut! Like, so good, dude. It's like one of the... It's a shot that's been recreated in a thousand movies since, but... And there's so much detail in, like, every every shot of that movie that Scorsese put in. And another thing that you mentioned, I forget what song's playing when they do that tracking shot, but, like, all Scorsese movies, he spends, like... Dollars, like yeah. dollars buying the rights all these like rolling stone the the, the music changes you know through the decades as you follow henry hill the scores how about henry hill taking a there, right? taking a revolver and going across the street and just pistol whipping homeboy oh. to like half to death in his driveway telling him if you ever touch her again i'll kill you then he just walks over this girl he's been on two dates with and puts a bloody revolver in her hand and goes hide this and she goes I'm not going to lie, it turned me on. You're just like, holy shit, dude, what? Well, and that whole scene where she's pointing the gun at him. Yeah. You know, like, she's got the gun right there. And it's her choice not to, you know, it's like, from a character standpoint, that's her choice. And then her at the apartment, banging, like, hitting all the buttons, being like, 2R, Rossi, you're a whore. Landlord, you have a whore living here. Like, so classic, dude. She kills him. We have to move yeah. on because like, I know I'm sorry. We're that's... like 25 minutes in this. Hey, we can talk about Goodfellas. <laughs> that, yeah, so that's why it's yeah, we, we, I mean, we're gonna do we're gonna do a uh, a a Goodfellas pot, I'm sure, eventually. But uh, we need to move on to my pick because it's all about me. Um, so the <laughs> n- my my pick is gonna be. Um, you know, this could be construed as probably like a best movie and maybe not best screenplay, but I'm gonna go ahead and pick it because it's there and. Webb probably knows, because I've talked about this multiple times, this this is kind of my go-to favorite movie of all time, or at least it's been for most of my life, and that's Forrest Gump. Great pick. Number two overall. Great pick. So Forrest Gump, let's get started with it. Um, I think, to me, this story is all about the characters. I think what is fascinating about Forrest Gump is that it is extremely character-driven for a character who who in no way, shape, or form should be relatable. Because he is a, he's mentally challenged, but he's also wildly athletic and he just kind of falls under these circumstances, but yet we somehow relate to him really well and we, we, we kind of attach ourselves to him. Um, I also think Loki, it has one of the best, I don't want to say antagonist, but maybe fake allies in film, which is Ginny. I mean, I oh, know there's a lot of memes worst, about Ginny being just, she is the worst. yeah, she is the worst. 
Forrest Gump just is all about hope, like what's going to come next. And Jenny is kind of the ultimate hope in that story. Yeah. What, when is Forrest going to eventually get with her? What's that going to look like? That's kind of what you think throughout the entire story. But the script has more to, it, there, there's more out there for Forrest than, than just that, right? And I love stories that are both meandering, but like that are meandering, but that keep you engaged right there's a few other scripts that are that are like that on here that i don't want to give away because some of them might be my picks but anytime that a story can have not just like a plot b plot and then resolution anytime they can just kind of be this seamless flow of one thing led to another but it's engaging for two hours like you get bonus points for that um it's paced incredibly well there's so many good characters i mean lieutenant dan obviously um Bubba, obviously Lieutenant incredible Dan character. Magical legs. You know what movie I compare it to a lot is uh, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which I've always felt is like similarly yes. charming yeah. and kind of fanciful, magical, and again, very yeah. meandering. Like you can't really tell. They don't really go that far in that movie. Like it's kind of an A to B that like, you know, a couple days long, but it's just like a, a lovely little small town tale, and that's kind of what Forrest Gump is too. Um, and I love... I think while people may not identify with him, I think they aspire to his level of like innocence and like naivete, like almost like positive naivete. I love the, he talked me into investing in some fruit company called Apple and we did pretty well. Like yeah. just things like that. You're just like, oh man, yep. what a good guy. <laughs> like it didn't change him. Like I, it's I, so I think, good. I think the number one thing about this film that I can't say quite as strongly about other films on my big board is Forrest Gump is the one film of my top 10 that is so well written but there's no heaviness to it and it's to the point where i can show forrest gump to literally any audience i can show it to like my future children i could show it to like in-laws whoever it doesn't matter who the audience is there are other films on this list like let's be honest like shawshank redemption or whatever we're like there's some people that are not going to get it and it might not resonate with them but forrest gump kind of straddles the line between like great drama, comedy, and just telling a really interesting story with a really strong protagonist that is super rare in all forms of storytelling. So, you know, to use a sports analogy, Forrest Gump is like, I just took the boring center from Notre Dame that like, nobody's going to be like, wow, really excited about that. But like, dude, you can't argue about yeah, it. It's just super solid. It's fundamentals just so flawless sure. from start to finish. Definitely. Yep. Beginning of a big, beautiful relationship between Tom Hanks and I think Robert Zemeckis. Tom Hanks is going to be on it. this list a couple times. Uh, I have a, a strong feeling. Yep. Yeah, and that's that's side note. That's another movie with a great soundtrack too that I'm sure they spent a ton of money on. And, and, and side note, I didn't realize until I was doing um, some studying up for this pod that Robin Wright, the who plays Ginny, I didn't realize that the actress yeah. that plays Ginny is the same actress that plays. Frank Underwood's wife, on, whose name is escaping me, on no uh, way House, House of, of Cards. Cards. Wow, yeah, yeah. I had Robin been in a lot of stuff. Married to Sean Penn was Ugh. for a while. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. Sean, Sean Penn's ex-wife. Did she get to hang out with El Chapo um, too, or was that just Sean? <laughs> <laughs> so Webb, uh, with all that being said, give us your uh, the number three overall pick. What you got? This is the number three overall pick, and my number one pick, my first round draft spot. Gentlemen, I'm going to go with Silence of the Lambs. Oh, nice. Great choice. Yes. I love this movie. I actually went back and watched it this weekend once I realized that I wanted this to kind of be my first round pick. 
This movie was the first and only horror film ever to win what they call the Big Five at the Oscars, which means it won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Screenplay. Nice. There's only two other movies in the history of cinema that have ever done that. It happened one night from 1934 and one flew over the cuckoo's nest from like mid-70s. Um, this, going back and re-watching it, one, I will just say in general, this movie is extremely dark. Yeah. Um, I'd kind of forgotten just how not only like violent it is, but man, there is some stuff uh, in that movie that it is just like man i it, this would be so raw kind of even if it came Definitely. out today dude the guy the guy throwing cum on her from the jail cell yeah that's that's, that's fucking exactly rough that. dude like yep. in any time period i had totally <laughs> forgotten about that well he he she walks by and he says that he can smell her you know woman yeah. parts he's like i could and then on the way back he does that and, and i mean that's all in like the first 5 minutes but this is a great story, top to bottom. I think that they do a great job setting up this character, Hannibal Lecter, who is definitely a fake opponent ally. He appears to be an antagonist towards Clarice, but he's really, you know, helping her find Buffalo Bill and yeah. likes her. It's very similar to how, like, Snape works in the Harry Potter sure. series. And they do a, the, the build-up from the beginning of this movie just to, like, she's going to meet Hannibal Lecter. There's great build-up. She, like, goes down to the jail cell, and it's all dark, and... The guards like talking to her about this guy, and he's like, "Yeah, you know, he he killed this guy." And they, the police said that his pulse never went above eighty five, even when he ate her tongue. That's so scary. And dude. It just is like, dude, it's so freaky. I, overall, I just think it does a great job, kind of handling its themes. It's obviously terrifying. This was a movie that was based off a book. It was actually, I think, the book, "The Silence of the Lambs," was a sequel to "Red yeah. Dragon," which became yep. kind of like a prequel that they released later. But man, it is. It's great. The characters are all deep. You've got... It's, it's not you know, cheap um, like a lot of other horror was in the 90s. Like, you look at other big-name horror movies that came out in the 90s, like Scream, where they went super meta and, like, kind of made a mockery because horror was so huge in the 80s. They felt like they had nowhere to go. And then you get, like, the Blair Witch Project, which kind of created this new genre of, like, the found footage, you know, paranormal activity is kind of in that same vein. Um, and so this was, like, a really heavy-hitting... Not not jump scares, not is way more on the psychological side, and it's done so well. And obviously, it's got tentpole performances from both uh, Clarice Starling and Hannibal Lecter. Um, I, I totally agree, man. It's like well, I, I actually am a bit not a horror person. I, I don't enjoy being scared that much. Um, but Silence of yep. the Lambs is easily one of the best horror movies I've ever seen, like by a significant margin. They do a great job of of ratcheting up the tensions you know as things go on clary shows up she first meets hannibal lecter she sees that he's got this he's got all these drawings all over his cell and one of them is of uh this you know the city of florence that he's drawn completely from memory and he's like all i have left is my memories now and his whole thing is he's going to try to get her to to kind of meet his end goals which is he wants to get out of this baltimore state hospital um and go somewhere that has a has a view where you can see some trees maybe see the sky at least that's what he says and as the story goes on, obviously you find out more about the Clarice character. And Lecter's got her pin from oh, the yeah. jump. Like as soon as he meets her, you know, talks down to her about the way she's dressed. She's wearing these cheap shoes and stuff. And by the way, there's a huge element of uh, misogyny and sexism oh, that is built into this. When I went back and watched it, a little bit of it felt, uh, I think, looking back 30 years in the future, some of it feels a little overhanded. You know, like Clary shows up to the Baltimore State Hospital and she's like immediately getting hit Definitely. on by the by the guy that works there. But at the same time, a lot of it's really nuanced. Um, and come to find out, 
this whole backstory that she has of her parents died early. She had to go live at this farm in Montana. And one night she just heard when they were killing all the lambs, she heard them screaming and like she tried to save one of them but couldn't. And then her uncle like found her and like killed that lamb and then booted her to go live in an orphanage. So like her whole character is trying to, in what Lecter asks her, which by the way, when he sees her near the end of the film, he's eating his second dinner that night and he orders lamb medium rare. And he goes, do you think if you catch Buffalo Bill and save this girl that the screaming will stop? Thus the name Silence of the Lambs. Yeah. And it just how about when you first dude, see so the where she's walking down the hallway uh, and you see the plexiglass cell, you instantly know it's like different than the other cells. And as she walks and the the frame of reference like widens, you just see him standing like perfect posture, smiling like with his head already like zeroed at her. And he's just like, and then the iconic the hello Clarice. You're just like, damn, oh, dude. He said, I heard, I actually read something where he said something about his voice. He actually went, uh, what did he say? I wrote this down. He, he tried to sound like a mix between Truman Capote and Catherine Hepburn. Wow. That's what and, and I can kind of hear that now that I think about it. That. Like, definitely the Capote side of things makes a ton of sense. He has that weird inflection of, like, high, high sounds in the back yep. of your throat. And then Audrey Hepburn with, like, that very enunciated, like, round vowels, like... No, that's very cool. Man, and it, it is just uh, overall, like, the Buffalo Bill character is obviously creepy as hell. I read that, like, some of the critics of this film in years since have said, well, like, hey, this is an attack on, um, like, like trans- transgenderism. People. And then the film's, the writer has come back and was like, dude, this guy, and Lecter even says this, it's like, he's not a transgender. He is so disturbed that his only, like, he is trying to become farthest just away the opposite from what of he what is he is, possible, is. yeah right? exactly like, exactly and so he goes down this crazy wormhole and obviously like keeping the girl in that pit and she's he's trying to starve her to loosen up her skin oh, dude and so i mean it's it, dude it is so disturbing in that last scene uh where she's in the house and he cuts the lights out and you're seeing everything from his night vision and she's like right in oh, front of God. him just like terrified is the freakiest uh you know, like he's like he has her hand like right in front of his face, and you can just like see that she feels him right by there. It's not till he does the safety on his gun that she just like turns Blast around, him. And yeah, blasts him. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. The only thing I'll add here is that we had somebody on Twitter pose the question: If would you rather have a story with a boring protagonist or a poor, a boring villain? And I think this movie is a perfect example of a strong villain can completely create a you can create a story out of thin air with a strong villain right because in theory a villain is what creates the plot right they create the problem that then becomes the entire plot of the of the story Webb, you you talked about hannibal lecter's character being a fake ally but just calling him for a villain for a second because that's what he kind of represents for most of the film what a strong villain to base your story off of. It's, I mean, that that can carry so much of the screenplay and so much of the movie, just him alone. The rest of the movie could be subpar, which it's not, but if it was, you could just have Hannibal Lecter and it would be a, well, that, a really And I think he's, he's uniquely disturbing to people because we make, I think in general, people comfort themselves with the idea that they could spot a monster from far off. That they're, they're, they're like Buffalo mm-hmm. Bill. They're weird. They live in a, dank cave of a house they got long stringy hair they can barely put a sentence together they've got shifty eyes so to see someone who is like cultured articulate charismatic 
like sociopathic enough to engage you in conversation and be incredibly warm when they want to be and like reel you in and yet be so monstrous that they would like bite your tongue out of your mouth is uniquely terrifying to people who pride themselves yep. on the ability to like recognize evil when it's up close and they might not be able to with a guy like yep. Victor. For sure. And I All think right. that uh, the fake, uh, let me, let me just do a couple touch points on this real quick. So I did want to just point out that like that fake opponent ally that Hannibal Lecter plays is, it's a lot more rare because it doesn't, those type of characters don't give opposition for you to like develop your protagonist against, yeah. you know, it's much more common to have a fake ally opponent to, to help build your story. So this was a beautiful use of that. Um, we could talk about it for a while, but we'll keep moving. I know. We don't want to spend the whole time talking about Silence of the well, Lambs. You That's got my your first next pick. one, too. You also have the fourth pick. Yeah. Okay, so for fourth pick, and now that it falls upon me, um, you know, I'm second-guessing myself, just like we do in these drafts. Man, I'm going to do Unforgiven with Clint Eastwood. Nice. Ooh, good choice. Nice. Yep. So I believe that this movie won, if I think it won Best Picture, probably. Um, yep, un- Best Picture, 1992. I don't think it won for the script alone, but it is... It's one of my favorite movies of all time. It is definitely kind of a riff on <laughs> Clint Eastwood's entire you know career from his early days in Hollywood and takes on the issue of you know violence and does violence beget violence. It's, it's definitely a commentary on movie violence. The whole film is... And for those that haven't seen it, Clint Eastwood plays this guy. I think his name's William Mundy. He used to be a killer, roamed the West, you know, hired hand, uh, and, and and then he got married and settled down, but his wife died, and he's like an unsuccess, you know, he's tried to do a pig farm and live this normal life, and it just hadn't panned out. And what happens in the beginning of the movie is that you have this uh, local sheriff, he's played by Gene Hackman, he's a character named Little Bill, and there's an incident one night at a whorehouse in this small western town where they uh, deface, like actually cut up one of the prostitutes. So these women get together and they basically put out um, a bounty contract yeah. for someone to come in. Yeah, exactly. And so that's when Clint Eastwood kind of rolls into town. But throughout the whole movie, you really see like how violence is just one. It it never really feels like justification. For example, like there is a uh, character who is named English Bill or something who comes into town to take on Gene Hackman. And when Gene Hackman finally kills this guy or kicks his ass in front of everyone in town, it's like not a gratifying experience for the audience. In fact, it, like there is a shot each each time Gene Hackman like hits this guy, it cuts to some of the townspeople, you know, and they're looking horrified. There's another character named the Showfield Kid who wants to be just like Clint Eastwood. You know, he's really eager to like go out and and, and kill people and and make a name for himself and. Uh, when he actually does it, he goes to an outhouse and ends up shooting this guy. It, like, messes him, him up, you know? Like, he does not have the stomach for it. And what's interesting about this is that the film is not, while that's kind of the theme, uh, I think that what it does really well is that it's definitely not overhanded in any way. The film is not set out as, like, some diatribe for, like, hey, violence doesn't beget violence and this isn't bad. In fact, the way that the film ends is, you know, Clint Eastwood is very upfront about, like, dude, this stuff that happened in my former life is, it's not the stuff of romantic dime store novels that, you know, you read about in the Old West. Like, it's a lot of, and it's not even bravery. It's, like, dumb luck and cowardice half the time. But yet, at the end of the movie, instead of having, like, any sort of uh, completing that character arc totally, 
it just descends right back into immortality. Like Clint Eastwood comes back after they kills his friend in one of the best ending scenes of any movie of all time. He comes into uh, the saloon where Gene Hackman is and he's got a double barrel shotgun with him and he just cranks it and everyone stops. And there's this guy standing there and he goes, move it, fat man. This guy moves out of the way. Gene Hackman, you know, tells me, he goes, I know your type. You know, I've, guy like you, you've killed women and children. And Clint Eastwood just goes, he's like, yeah, I reckon I've killed just, I've killed women and children. I reckon I've killed just about everything that's walked or crawled at some point. And now I'm here to kill you, little Bill. And it is just, and then like thunder, boom, like strikes. And it literally gives you goosebumps every time you watch it. That's awesome. So I think it's one of Clint Eastwood's finest movies. And it's one of the best of the night. It's got a top tier Western town name of uh, Big Whiskey, Wyoming, which is just like amazing name for a Western town. Like exclusively gunfighters hang out in Big Whiskey, Wyoming. (laughs) Like Yes. You know, I think that uh, Unforgiven is one of the best of the 90s. I'm going to roll with that for my second pick. Um, I think it's one of Clint Eastwood's finest pieces of work, and it's interesting how it kind of challenges the mythology behind, you know, the character he played for most of his career. And Gene Hackman, like, it launched his, like, uh, kind of a period of him playing, like, the the big bad. Um Dude. What was, was the everything. what was the other movie where it's like a western town that Gene Hackman runs and everyone has to gunfight him? You know what I'm talking about? Oh, yeah, the, the Quick and the, the Dead, dead dude. That cap Sharon Stone, so Russell Crowe, Leo DiCaprio, so that thing was I mean way more campy yeah. and ridiculous but this, like way way, yeah, way more yeah. but like another just like they pretty much definitely went to Gene Hackman and they were like, "You remember Unforgiven? Okay, same thing. You just <laughs> you're just yep. little Bill again." <laughs> yeah. I mean, this you got to think like Hollywood was built on the western, which eventually turned into the action movies because westerns yeah. are too slow paced. Cuz I mean, the the budget you needed, like the the production of a western was so yep. much easier than anything else. Like the sets were easier to build. They it, they could take them out in the desert and you're there. That's actually where it happened, so that's but we, easy. We like, did westerns for 50 years and Unforgiven was like the first movie that really came out and and there was nothing, they weren't trying to make this sexy. It challenged everything that that we just had kind of come to assume about you could the make Western. A, you could make good a case that like, like the that. lineage of like the more gritty Western, like the good, the bad, and the ugly, Unforgiven, and then more modern ones like True Grit, to a degree Django, but that's like a lot, got a lot more comedy in the, it. The remake of True Grit. Yeah, yeah the remake of True Grit. Better than the original. And then uh, like the exact even, like, even like uh, neo-Western, like Western noir, like... Um, Hell or High Water or Wind River. Mm. Um, I think that those are all kind of descended from that same lineage of like this this more honest look at what like life on the edge of civilization is like. Um, and they're and they're always really great. I mean, I love all those movies I just named. Yep. Yeah. Well, that's it. That's my that's my second pick. I guess we'll throw this back to Sam now. Yeah. Um. So for my for my second pick, you know, one one thing that's interesting about the '90s is there's so many good heavy hitting dramas and again i use the sports analogy it's like i i want a wide receiver in this draft but there's like 10 really good wide receivers but there's only a handful there's certain genres there's only a handful of really really good screenplays so i'm gonna pick where there's some scarcity is i'm gonna move a little bit further down in my board and grab for my second pick saving private ryan awesome movie mm. almost was my number one like, very it, difficult well, for me not to make yeah this like that one. it's that good yeah, I it's like my favorite movie of all time. So it was uh I was debating putting it on this list uh for the top 5, but I I've got Do you remember back the first time you saw truly, like, just, Ryan? 
No, yes, but it, it but was man, is it awesome. was it like? I mean, it's one of those movies. I, I talked about how earlier Forrest Gump is a movie that I could show everybody. Saving Private Ryan is a movie that I would be excited to show yeah. certain people. Yes, um, absolutely. I was thinking about earlier about like Saving Private Ryan is obviously a phenomenal movie, but the question is, is it a good screenplay? And the answer is an obvious yes yeah. as you start digging through it. I do think that it's a better movie than screenplay because Spielberg yeah. just like well the action set dude, pieces dude. are such a huge piece of the equation yeah. that that's I mean, hard he, to he changed, overcome. But it's the beginning of realism. But here's the deal about this about this screenplay is like an action movie can have wild, awesome, incredible action, but not have the plot that Saving Private Ryan yeah. does. I'm thinking a little bit about the movie, uh, the Lone Survivor movie had really good action. Yeah. But I don't think it's going to be remembered in 20 years because Saving Private Ryan with the storyline of like saving the brother, you know, the, the last surviving brother, they have to go find him, I think is an incredibly gripping plot. The scene where they go visit the mother at the beginning and tell her, you know, basically that, that her third child has died yeah. is is just like one of the most I think she touching gets all three letters at once, isn't that uh, it? She gets. Yeah. They tell her like all. Yeah. They, they're like, "Hey, you're like, you got one left, and you had four. Yeah. Like, they, and the the scene, she's washing wow. the dishes, and she looks out yep. the the farmhouse window, and that car that she's clearly oh. dreaded for the entire time her son's been out there is coming down the road. She opens the front door, and the army officer gets out, and she's just like, okay. And then the chaplain gets and out. She just falls. And she just collapses yeah. oh. onto her porch, dude. The whole movie is just. Oh, it. I mean, I'll say this. The first time I saw this film, I was probably 10 years old. And they used to, I don't know if they still do this, but when cable television like ruled the world, every year on Memorial Day, they would show Saving Private Ryan with no commercials. Yeah, and like unedited. Uh, un, unedited, yeah. yeah. Full unedited on TV. And I remember my dad uh, calling me downstairs and telling me like, okay, we're going to watch this movie. And I had not seen like any rated R movies at the time. And he was like, it's rated R, but... This is a very important movie. And I was like, whoa, like my dad normally doesn't say yeah. like that about a movie. And dude, then the D-Day scene happens. And I've never seen anything like no. that. Like I wasn't a sheltered kid, but like there weren't that many movies with like dudes with their intestines hanging well, out, coming out. And this wasn't like right. a gory, you know, kind of cartoony thing. This was an army of the uh, army of darkness. This was like some real shit. And I think – as an adult, the thing that hits me so hard is that it is so difficult to write a character that people simultaneously identify with and hate. And Saving Private Ryan is one of these movies where the corporal, the, the you know, I can't remember his name, but the guy that's like a scared motherfucker that yeah. lets... Yeah, the guy who caught, who directly causes his comrades exactly. to die with the whole stabbing I, scene, yeah. To a, to a man, almost every American male that I have ever talked to about this agrees with me that like... The reason you hate that guy so much is because deep down, everyone who has not served carries this deep fear that you would be that guy. That like, so you, without, without unless you have tested yourself in the fire of war, you have no real concept of how you would react. And so, in in everyone, there is a degree of like fear. And so, you could be the guy that's at the bottom of the stairs, gripping your helmet and crying as the dude that just bayoneted your homie to death walks by you kind of laughing at you and that is that's yeah. powerful filmmaking dude and spielberg did such great like easter eggs in this film um this is the last piece i'll talk about and i'll hand it off to you but like the on d-day they come up over the the ridge and there's a slit trench with some nazis in it and they come up with their hands up and they're they're yelling in what the the soldiers think is german 
and they put their hands up and they just blow them away anyway. And they're like, oh, what were they saying? And the joke is, he's like, oh, he said, look, I washed for supper. If you turn on subtitles, they are speaking in Czech, not German. And it says, uh, we're not, we're not Nazis. We're not Germans. We're Czech. We were forced to fight. Like, please don't kill us. And you're just like suddenly in that moment, because you too are without the subtitle, you too are in the same position as the American soldiers where you're just like right there with them. Like, yeah, fuck these guys. Like smoke these dudes, dude, they're evil. They're the Nazis. Let's go. And then only afterward in your like second or third viewing or whatever, when you watch it with subtitles, you're suddenly aware of like, dude, this is what war does Mm -hmm. to humans is it turns you into this like bloodthirsty version of yourself where you're like a hundred percent down to shoot someone who's unarmed and surrendering. Like it's crazy. It's an incredible film. It's, it's a masterpiece. Yeah. The, the the other thing I want to add real quick is he talked about the D day scene, you know, we talk about how great these action scenes are and they are incredible. It, it, It shouldn't be lost that the screenplay in those scenes is phenomenal because the dialogue is super realistic. The things that these characters are saying in the heart of the action is obviously incredible. I, I don't even I almost don't even want to get into some of the details about like what some of the characters are saying after they get hit, you know, yeah. and as they're kind of like experiencing mm-hmm. the last moments. That's incredibly powerful. Crying for their mom and stuff. That's rough. The other thing I want to hit on is Tom Hanks's character kind of devolving throughout the film, being ready to go into war during D Day, and then you see him freeze up on the beach, and then by the end of the film, there's a scene where um, I think in the last scene he's just standing there kind of waiting for the next thing to happen. All of a sudden he looks down and his hand is shaking. Right. And just like little things like that is it's the nuances I think of this film that make it so incredible of it being such a character driven piece. So many of those things could be lost in every war movie. I mean, I think about a movie like, you know, we talk about action in a war movie. What what's the movie with Tom uh, Tom Cruise called called Tomorrow War? Edge of Tomorrow. Tomorrow Also slaps though. Great movie slaps but also like is kind of the antithesis as this as far as a war oh, movie for sure. where it's like sci-fi cool like... plot cool action but like characters flat dialogue flat there's no depth to it well and, and like people are getting like this... torn in half by aliens and no one cares whereas like in Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. someone gets like shot in the arm and people are just like the gravity of that is so much heavier yep. than like the most violent death in a more crazy movie i think the only other yep. war movie i've seen like saving private ryan is probably the thin red line yeah. which also came out in the 90s but yep. similarly heavy about its treatment of war as like not something to be made light of or to be uh, held up as like some beyond like some higher virtue but like a grim reality of living in the modern world. Yep. There are some similarities that we could definitely yep. make between Unforgiven and Saving Private Ryan. I, I will just say Agreed. as a last note, and I know this doesn't uh, particularly relate to the story, but like I said, Saving Private Ryan is one of my top favorite movies. If we were just doing a list of like, hey, what were the best movies of the 90s? Saving Private Ryan, maybe it's my personal number one. Uh, and one thing that you cannot take away from Spielberg here is that, man, you watch any war movie and arguably, even any action movie pre-Saving Private Ryan, I mean, look at Platoon or anything that came out before, and then look yeah. at everything that came out after, whether it's Black Hawk Down or Lone Survivor, or even like The Born Identity. 1914. Yeah, the whole emphasis became realism, because when veterans yeah, were allowed shaky into camera, that private screening, the they were like, dude, the, this is yeah. the most realistic thing that we, we've ever seen, so kudos to Well, and how many video games yeah. after that we're just like, okay, the whole game is going to be basically the D-Day scene from Saving Private Ryan. Yeah. Like, it was like, that That had a cultural impact that I think is hard to even understand in the modern world where, like, 
everyone doesn't go see the same movie on the same weekend. Everyone's consuming it at a different time. There's very few, like, yeah, totally different than when it was like everyone experiences at the same time. Everyone's grandpa told them it was crazy. Mm-hmm. Like, and now, and now you understand what they mean. I mean, for sure. Would we have ever played Beachhead at Dave and Buster's if it wasn't for Saving Pro- Private Probably not. <laughs> that probably wouldn't have been a game. Yeah, it was great. And to I answer your slap, question, Andy, I had a very similar experience my first time watching it. I think I was about 12. It came on unedited on TV, and my dad also sat me down and was like, hey, you need to watch this just to understand what like some people have done from, for your country. And me, got kids like yeah. me and you who always liked from an early age military history and stuff, I really think that was an interesting... You know, we read books about... Uh, you know, Caesar and different wars and campaigns and stuff. And we would just always, we had, we definitely had romantic ideas about it. And then you see Saving Private Ryan, it's like getting slapped in the face. We're just like, dude, you would never in a million years want to find yourself in this scenario. Oh yeah. Like up until that point, I really do. I probably did tell people like, yeah, I want to go be in the army or something. And I think that you just don't understand Mm -hmm. like, you just can and, and you know what? No child should know the horror of war. Like sure. it's good that we were raised in a place where like that was far away. But yeah, it, that's that is why I, I'm glad that both of our fathers sat us down and were like, "Hey, like I, I'm glad you're not going to be at on Omaha, but you should at least have a good understanding of what was done there, so that you don't have to be on Omaha." Right. <laughs> like, good choice, Sam. So a- a- Andy, what do you have for your uh, for your second pick? Oh, so. I think like second and third picks really. Oh, my back to back. Oh, nice. What? You're back to back, like Drake. Then I am going to go. Uh, I'm going to go with a comedy first in Office Space. Ooh, so, I hadn't even thought about that. Office Space. I, yeah, is was a, not on my list. This is near and dear to my heart. Uh, this is filmed in Austin, about a yep. mile from my first apartment that I had here at Metric. Where, where in Austin was it filmed? Because it seems like it's like super... Metri- uh, like Metric Boulevard, like-, like about 10 blocks south of... Or like five blocks south of Palmer Lane. So like north Austin. But this was back when it was... Yeah, nothing. That was like yeah. no man's land. So it's just like office parks right. and sh- bullshit. Where Dell was. Like the, the only right. company in Austin worth the shit was Dell. So, um, but, you know, Mike Judge still lives here. Uh, you see him around town all the time, very much a staple of the Austin scene. And I loved this movie the very first time I saw it, but now that I've spent my entire professional career in like a technology company and uh, in a cubicle-like environment, like this movie has become both better and worse because it's so accurate. Um, I think it's one of like maybe the greatest like commentaries on American life in a given period ever made. I think it's more about like our parents' generation of work than ours. Like ours is a little bit different than this was because this was more about the dot com boom. And the commentary on that is so great. They work at this company called uh, like Intercom or something or Intertrode or something, and yeah, their whole job is to prep bank software for the Y two K. Oh switch. yeah, I so forgot. Just, like, going through lines of code, so switching it from two to four digits, which is like the most nineteen ninety nine yep. job you could have. Um, but it's it's incredible. All the characters have depth to them. They each have their own like uh, kind of motivation for participating in this like grift that they're going to try to pull off. Um, they live like the quintessential upper middle class white man's tortured existence, yep. where it's like you don't really have problems, but you feel very like oppressed by the the invi- like the gray life that you've fallen yep. into, where you're just going to do this for forty years. Um, and especially in the late nineties, man, I think that was a very real thing. Like it is today too, but like 
these were, you know, the, the generation before us had really been sold on the idea of like, you're going to be moving up. Your parents were kind of middle class. You're going to be upper middle class. So like, this is going to be great. And then they realized what that entailed. And it was this cubicle life that emerged in the late eighties, early nineties of the corporate, of corporate America. And it was horrific for their mental health. And so this movie has so many, gr- I mean, the, the writing of the screenplay where they like juxtaposition from them like in this office to like out immediately out into the field with the fax machine that jams every day and it's playing all the, the, the really hardcore rap music and they're just beating the shit out of the fax machine with baseball bats and like kicking it. Incredible. Um, one of the early appearances of Jennifer Aniston as the uh, the waitress at Tchotchke's. Yeah, the- the, all the oh, yeah. flair where they have to wear flair and you kind of get her you kind of get her personal hell too it's like anyone that works in the service industry has worked with oh, both God. a shitty boss who makes you do like extra shit like that and then also the co-worker who's like way more into this than anyone should be who's like welcome to Chosky's guys you guys can I start you guys off with some fajita poppers or maybe some extreme fajitas and they're just like oh god dude stop what man like, I- so to yeah. kind of to piggyback off one Incredible. of the things you said, there's definitely a reoccurring theme, especially at the end of the 90s, between like 1997 and 1999, where you get movies like Office Space or like American Beauty or even like the beginning of Fight Club the Matrix. Where, yeah, it's like, dude, if you you know don't have a job at all, you you feel hopeless and that's a huge problem. But if you have a job, then you've got the luxury of being like, man, I'm not doing enough with my life. And there was kind of that not fulfilled. The late 90s, yeah. like investment was booming, like the economy was good, and yet. So many people, I, I think there was obviously that common sentiment uh, because it, it, it yeah. It I think people figured out that like having material things doesn't make you happy, and that realization was really horrible because like you've been conditioned your whole life to like, hey, just like if you get this job and you get you go to college, you get this job, you make this money, you're going to be good. And they did all that, and they were like, shit, I'm miserable. How do I fix that? So he's going to a hypnotist, like he's doing weird shit to yeah. try to fix that problem. And Fight Club's a very similar thing. You know, he's got like the, the accounting job or the insurance job or whatever. And he's in the same boat where he's like, I just want to feel alive. And I don't right now. No. And so he gets into some crazy shit. So yeah, man, Office Space, an incredible film. I got to watch the, this at the Alamo Ritz downtown. It was the 20th year anniversary screening with Mike Judge and the entire cast doing a Q&A. And they sat in the row in front of me. I was right behind Samir. And the guy that played Samir and the guy that with the glasses that like does the coding for the scam. And I got to listen to them whisper to each other through the whole movie. So I got like kind of like this like bootleg commentary where they were like, dude, how many times did you have to try to do that breakdancing move? Like a hundred. And I was like, ah, that's awesome. So incredible. Did you through text in messages like Top Gun? Dude, that'd be, that would have been a That movie also answered one of the like, uh, you know, biggest questions of all time, which was, what would you do with a million dollars? Two oh, chicks yeah. at one Two time, chicks man. at the same time, man. Yeah. Two chicks at one time. He's <laughs> like, really? That, that's, that's it? <laughs> that's Yeah, man, I figure if I had a million bucks, two ch- the kind of girls would double up on a guy like me, they'd be into that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One of the most meta responses that I've seen to that question on on whether it's like Reddit or message boards is like, if ever there's a question about what would you do with money or if this happened in your life and somebody will just post a picture of that man staring yeah. towards the camera on the couch. He's you know? such a great and character. So you either know it or you don't, right? He's And everyone, again, when you're in your early 20s and you have your first job and you live in like a low-end apartment, everyone has had like a weird neighbor who like does construction yeah. or something. That's like when you're still in like the blue collar level of, of living situation. And like him banging on the wall, be like, Peter, man, 
turn on channel 17 dude and it's like a it's like them doing a 2020 investigation on breast cancer so they have boobs on the tv or like it's so like hey man uh i might be going away to prison for a while he's like real serious he's like all right man we'll uh watch your cornhole man <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's his that's his advice like oh, yeah. yeah so incredible what, what's your third what's your third movie Andy? I love my, and then my third movie oh this is so tough um all right, after a lot of debate, because there is a bunch of movies I would love to put here, I'm going with Heat. Ooh! Starring Al Pacino and Robbie Zanero. Got a fat ass! This is, yes, this movie is... is and you got your head all the way up it! This movie is, one, fucking awesome, two, absurd. It is. Like, the entire thing is fucking crazy. It's ridiculous. From moment yeah. one, it is just adrenaline dude it never you never get comfortable watching this movie because every scene is either like uncomfortable from like a personal standpoint or just like adrenaline going full pump the opening armored car robbery where they just like the dude makes one false move they shoot one of them and then they're like well might as well not be any witnesses and they just rock and roll on all these guys and then al pacino comes in and he's doing the breakdown and he's like as soon as it escalated to a murder one beef, they said, hey, what the hell? Might as well not leave any witnesses, and they rock and rolled on all these guys. And you're like, okay, so Al Pacino's going to be doing the, the cool Dude, jazz detective thing the whole movie. I will right. tell you that Heat is, it's great. Heat is it's definitely great, one of the though. best of the movies, but I every time I watch that movie, I'm fully convinced that like that was a time period in Al Pacino's life where he was like, Dude, this is going to be your Oscar moment. And he just overacted One, he so thought he was hard. winning an Oscar. He thought he, he definitely thought he was winning an Oscar. And two, he was really having to. He was really like torn between like every person he had ever loved and cocaine. Yeah, dude, it seems that, like he's on moment. cocaine the he entire was, movie. He is yeah, yeah. He is like film, prime out of control. Uh, but it's it's so nuts. Um, but the the there's so many great performances and well written characters in this movie. Like Robert De Niro is like this consummate professional thief. Um, you know, the reason it's called heat is because the, his whole like mantra is like, never have anything in your life that you can't walk away from in five seconds flat. If you feel the heat around the corner and him and Pacino are like two men who have sacrificed everything to be the best at one side or the other of the crime coin. So like Al Pacino's on like marriage number three, because he's just like so devoted to being the best problem you can give your protagonist is they're married to the job, baby. Like die hard. You're just too good at you. You're too committed. And your family suffers. That is a great... Although Al Pacino is like... Al Pacino's like dating some super rich chick. So he lives in a mansion yep. the whole movie, which is 90s tight. 90s cops were so lives in a cliffside the mansion. They were absurdly wealthy. Right. Um, but he's awesome. And then Val Kilmer turns in a really strong... Maybe one of the, the later stage strong performances of Val Kilmer. Dude, Val Kilmer is a 90s... This was like prime. Like, if, if, the, he is so synonymous this was, with the 90s for me. I love, I love Val This is the period of Val Kilmer's career where he did Tombstone and this back to back. And so he was just like, I'm in the zone. I can shoot from the logo. No one will fuck with me. He's doing Doc Holliday and now he's doing this. He's the gam- the degenerate gambling addict who just like has to have another job because he has n- – they're, they're stealing like $10 million at a time and he's broke as fuck. Yeah. And like beating his wife. It's crazy. It's it's awesome. There's also little B plots that are like tragic. Like the the their their buddy gets out of prison. He gets saddled with this horrible job as a fry cook, where the boss takes a half of his check as like a corrupt like piece of shit because of parole. And so when De Niro shows up and is like, "Hey, I need a wheelman," he like signs up. He gets smacked. 
And then, dude, this movie culminates in what I think is, like, this is the shootout that, like, defined all shootouts in movies for, like, the rest of time. Like, this shootout was so good that some real-life dudes actually did this in L.A. They watched this movie and then went and got machine guns and robbed a bank in North Hollywood. (laughs) Like, it's so nuts. That's how good this was. Um, and they did not use visual effects for that scene. They shot blanks in, in the middle of downtown Los Angeles. So it was like super it feels loud. Very real. If you watch that movie now, dude, the, the audio of that scene is crazy. Yep. Like how loud it is compared to like when you watch other movies that have gunfire. It's terrifying how loud the gunfire is. Um, and it's I reminds me of a is fucking awesome. Hell or High Water when he pulls out his assault rifle yes. and how the sound immediately just kind of like something about that scene like really cranks it up to like 11 same thing with yeah they just want to give it gravitas you're just like whoa to to like how 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 much the presence of that weapon escalates the action and so that's exactly like this this is i think the quintessential like action heist movie and i think that when you know there was an old uh i can't remember if it was like dane cook or what but he said like every Every man has a, a fantasy where them and their friends are pulling off a heist and they're running down the street being like, where's the fucking van? Where's the van? Yeah. That, this is where that came from and it's true as fuck. This movie slaps. It's incredible. This draft pick feels like there was some, again, to use a sports analogy, is like this receiver out of Cal had 1,900 receiving yards and 20 touchdowns, but they also had like seven of those plays where they dropped the ball right before the end zone. Oh, bro, and like, know, and like three like, D, and like three D ones. Like this kid's, this kid's a mess. This kid is. A, he wasn't eligible for half of his career. This is Deshaun Jackson. This is Deshaun Jackson, dude. Like he's gang affiliated. Like. Yeah, this is, but it's, it is, it's got such a, a crazy high level of acting talent. It's the first time that Pacino and De Niro, yeah. Yeah, it's the first time De Niro and Pacino were on, on screen together at the same time. And they end up in this, like, that's crazy, which is, that is crazy. Huge deal. The diner scene where they sit down across from each other and they, it's like, you know what I am. I know what you are like, Hey, and De Niro just puts it to him. He's like, look, like I, I only know how to do one thing and that's take scores. And your job's to try to stop me. And that's how it is. But I'm going to let you know right now. I'm not going back to fucking prison. Yeah. Like, he's just like straight up, you got to kill me. That's what it is. You want to kill me right now? Do it. But you got to kill me. Meanwhile, the dude from the first job that like fucked up the first job is, is like a straight serial killer in the background of this movie the whole time. Like killing prostitutes and stuff. It's crazy. This movie's nuts, but it's awesome. I watch it probably once a year. Um... Me and my wife are in the middle of building our first house right now, and in that house is a media room that has built-in surround sound. And one of the first movies I'm going to watch when I have, you know, a night to myself is I'm going to just like turn off all the lights, crank up the volume on the audio system, and just watch Heat like mm. front to back, dude. It's going to be yep. rad. Man, I'm looking at my big board right now, and it's interesting because we still have so many really good dramas that either one best screenplay, best original screenplay, best adapted screenplay. Or maybe finish runner up, but there's just there's a few movies that are not technically dramas. And again, I just kind of go back to like what's available on the board. Andy, I thought you did a good job of of picking you know Office Space. Um, I'm going to move down on my board a little bit and pick what I consider to be the best mystery slash thriller of the '90s, and that is The Usual Suspects. Ooh, so good. Yep. I just watched that one of best original so screenplay good. when it came I- out. Here's my thing about The Usual Suspects. Two things that's, that stick out to me is when you're doing a mystery, 
if you can build a mystery where the answer to the mystery is relatively well spelled out, but also most people don't guess it before it's delivered to them, that's like the mark of a great mystery, right? Oh, yeah. And then the second thing is, I give a lot of kudos to any story, whether it's a movie, especially a movie where there's only like a two-hour runtime. I would even include written books in that when they're, when you can work with more more uh, pages, where you have that many characters that have so many different personalities that are magnetic in their own ways that you want to know more about that character. You want to see that character more on screen time. Yeah. Um, or you want to see that character more in pages. They have such a large cast in this movie, and they have so many events that happen in this in this story just to keep the ball rolling and to not have it feel like analysis paralysis or just be too much information all at once, I think is such a great mark of this film, right? And it really is one of the best whodunits in any genre. Or not genre, but any media. Well, that, it feels like that's how they hide Kaiser Soze a little bit too, is that like every character has to have some weight to it or else you'd realize very quickly who Kaiser Soze is. So like the fact that they all have like deep background they're all getting screen time they're all doing like really important integral pieces of the plot you're like any of these guys could be kaiser soze you have to, it has to be said the fact that kaiser soze has become such a huge like piece of culture that like that that name is uttered as like to illustrate yeah. like a, a a mysterious unknown actor is i think uh, speaks to the cultural yeah, that entered the lexicon movie. yeah so that's it i mean this is just such a great mystery thriller and again it made it so high up on my on my draft board just based on genre that i i couldn't go i couldn't not pick it it being left there it was it was my number six overall um as far as like number six screenplay of the 90s and again it was my i i think five or no four of my top six were dramas so i uh given another i think like 10 out of my first 15 were, were dramas. So I figured I could wait a little bit longer for that. So Usual Man, Suspects is my number It's three. a damn shame that Kevin Spacey turned out to be a weirdo. Cause yeah, great actor. The yeah. man can act his ass off, dude. He's, dude, he's really good. Dude, well, yep. correct, tell me this. At the end of that movie, you know, the big the big reveal um, is that he yeah. made all this stuff up. And really, he's been like looking over the yeah. police captain's head and like just reading shit that's on the bulletin board. And, and that Kevin Spacey is, in fact, Kaiser. Yes, yes. I need to go back and rewatch it. I feel like if I had one knock against the movie, it's that, like, there's not... Um, I, I would be interested to go back and see, like, how much information they give the audience if they're able to give you anything subtly before the big reveal at the end. Because I feel like the last time I watched it, one of my takeaways was, like, man, this movie's known for its great twist, but, like, it kind of just feels like at the end they are like, hey, he was reading the bulletin board the whole time. But you never, like, saw the bulletin I- board... I, f- I felt like I feel like it's it strikes a good balance because it's not like the sixth sense where it's an incredible twist the first time you watch it and then the next time you watch it you realize it's like they're really really staring you in the face the yeah. whole time and so you can never kind of appreciate it a second time. Um, Usual Suspects is great a hundred times. It's always really good, um, but I do think that they there are subtle hints to the the fact that he is in fact more involved than he's letting on because they, they pitch him as kind of this like, you know, handicapped, yeah. woe is me. I'm just kind of on the side, but he's this incredible con man. And so he's, yeah, they, they do. I, I feel like they strike yeah. a good balance, but valid call out web, because I will say that one of my biggest, I hate when stories have twists and unearned. You twists. feel like <laughs> as the audience, like I didn't give, I didn't get a chance to right. guess that. Yeah. That, that's how I felt about, the, the first one that comes to mind only because it's recent was Knives Out was like that or like I and there, there's Knives been other Out. movies obviously 
I, and I enjoyed it too, but like there, there, there are stories where like the entire story pins around this twist. I love the show Sherlock, but Sherlock, yeah, yeah. it's called Sherlock, right? Oh, yeah. The one with uh, Benedict, Benedict Cumberbatch. Cumberbatch. Yeah. Where there's Fire. episodes where you're like, no, I would have never guessed that. Yeah. Right? yeah. So I, I get what you're saying. Well, that's it for part one of this two-part series where we draft the best screenplays of the 90s. Tune in next time where we round out the rest of the draft, discuss superlatives, as well as discuss who had the best team and maybe what are some honorable mentions. If you like what you heard, of course, we always appreciate you guys to like and subscribe and um, give us a rating as well as tell your friends about our pod. And that's it from Novel Discourse. Again, we'll pick up next week with part two of this series. And until next time, thanks for joining. Peace. Wow, 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 wow.